As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the latest episode of I Am Steve R. It has been a while, and uh, I apologize for that. You know, I uh, I wrote another book, and then uh, I've been exceptionally busy. And to be honest with you, I just haven't had time to do this. And more to the point, I hadn't made time to do this. But uh, I felt a little guilty as of late. But many of you did have reached out, and today, Steve, when's the next episode? Well, here it is. I'll share with you guys, too. I uh, recently hit another milestone. And uh, 30 years, clean and sober, about 10 days ago, exactly 10 days ago. And I want to share a few things with you this evening, if I can, uh, about some things that I've learned in 30 years of clean and sober living. Now, the first thing that I'll tell you is there is a big difference between being dry, being sober. A lot of people say, well, you know, as long as they're not drinking. And we discussed that before on earlier shows, that uh, that is only a part of the problem. The drinking and the drug abuse is only a symptom of a larger problem. That's what the steps do for you. That's what your sponsor helps you kind of get down to. And in some cases, some people need professional help. Some people need a treatment facility. I have read some time ago, according to the Betty Ford Clinic, that one in 25 people that need help professionally actually get help one in 25 and so you can kind of do the math on that that's four percent and of that four percent one in 25 people that actually get help have a sustained period of sobriety that lasts a year the odds are not in our favor we lose more than we win that is the grim reality of the life in which we choose to live it's very rare that people make it it is very rare that people make it for a long time. Now, there are a few things that happen along the way that uh, make it difficult for people to sustain sobriety and, and any length of recovery time. And I think it's important that we're honest with each other. One of the things, and, uh, and I, I may step on some toes here, and quite frankly, if I do, I hope it hurts, because maybe you need to hear this. There are a lot of people that get into, quote, leadership positions in AA and NA and Celebrate Recovery that, to be honest with you, have no business being in leadership positions yet. Yet. Sometimes, and, and I'll speak from my own experience, when I was first attending meetings at Rebos down in Hattiesburg, you know, I was like, well, I can do this. You know, I can chair a meeting. And there were a lot of people, old-timers back in those days. You know, it was a lot more rigid back then. You know, today we've got this newfangled recovery where 
you know, everybody's a star. But back in those days, you couldn't just chair a meeting. You couldn't do it. Because, I mean, the, the sanctity of the meeting and of the group was held in such precious regard. They weren't just going to let anybody chair a meeting. Now, my argument against that's always been, you know what? We need to get the newcomer involved in service work, you know, pretty soon. We need to get them accepted as a member of the group. Because there are a lot of people that kind of treat AA and NA meetings as their own, you know, glorified country club. But there are a lot of ways that you can serve without chairing a meeting. You know, you can give out the chips. You can make the coffee. You can stay after, wipe the tables. There are things you can do to help the health of the group without necessarily being in a position of, quote, leadership. But what happened with me, you know, I got involved and started chairing meetings and that sort of stuff. And uh, there is a certain amount of self-esteem you glean from all that. It's almost like, hey, well, I must be getting it right. These people trust me enough to run the meeting. Well, you're not really running the meeting. You're just kind of starting the meeting. You, know, you read the preamble and how it works and you, you read the announcements and you ask for a topic. I mean, it takes no special skill. So I think it is important that we get newcomers involved in all that as quickly as we can, but not at the risk of the group. But that's the thing, too, is AA has sustained itself you know, long before you or I got sober. And it, it will sustain itself long after you and I are in the ground. That's the reality of life. We're not special in that regard. And here's the thing, too, and I think it's important, you know, in this day and time, there are so many triggers out there, you know, that kind of allow us to kind of glean some self-esteem from them. You know, but here's the harsh reality of that. The truth of the matter is, is the overwhelming majority of us are really not that cute. We're really not that special. We're really not that smart. So nobody's going to give us anything. And, I, and one of the things I've shared with you guys before, the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do in my life is work the steps and get sober and find a new way to live. I couldn't outsmart it. I couldn't pay with my looks. You know, I couldn't out-tough it. I had to do the work. And I think it's important to understand that it is work. And if you're looking for the easier, softer way, you're going to get loaded. And chances are you're not going to make it back. The sobering reality of it is, is the pathology of relapse is always the same. We don't work the steps. We don't go to meetings. We don't get a sponsor. We don't do those things. And then somehow, you know, we think, well, I'll just build a better mousetrap. No, you're not going to build a better mousetrap. You're going to build a better mousetrap your way right into relapse and, and right into the graveyard. Now, there are a lot of people, too, and again, if I step on some toes here, I, I hope that it hurts because that means you probably need to hear this. There are a lot of people that can't wait to get out there and tell everybody how great they're doing. Well, let, let me share this with you, too. This, too, shall pass. That doesn't just apply to the negatives in life. All things, good or bad, eventually pass. That pink cloud you're on the first nine months... You know, when everybody comes up and tells you, oh, you look great, you're doing great, look at you, you know. Well, eventually, that stops. Eventually, you kind of fall back into a regular routine of sorts when you don't have everybody walking around telling you how great you are. Because in the beginning, everybody knows how fragile you can be, and they want to give you positive affirmation as much as possible. But eventually, that wears out. It does. 
it runs out. Now, there are going to be some people that will always tell you how proud they are of you. And we all need those people in our lives. We do. That's one of the reasons that we had trouble in the first place. It's we needed validation and we looked to find it in any circles we could. Doesn't always work that way in real life, does it? You know, life sometimes can be very difficult. Get a helmet. It's tough. Now, there are other people, too. You know, they, we, you know, we want to go be in, you know, everything. You know, we want to go be a part of everything. Tell everybody how sober we are. But, you know, sometimes we can do that at the risk of hurting the group, of hurting the 12 steps, of hurting the lifestyle. Because once you go out there and kind of break your anonymity, you talk about, hey, look how sober I am. Well, you know, the, what's interesting about that, too, is what happens if you relapse? What happens if you go back out? Because sometimes that's a part of the recovery process for the still-suffering addict. And there are some still-suffering addicts that haven't used in a while. But we got to get out there. we got to tell everybody, look how sober I am, and let me go do this, and, you know, let me get up in front of the church. Let me, you know, maybe I can get on the radio or whatever, and we can talk about those things. That's why it's important in the beginning to be really selfish. We talk about this being a program of attraction rather than promotion. Okay, so maybe we don't need to promote ourselves. You can say, well, Steve, you know, you got a podcast about recovery. Yeah, I also have 30 years clean and sober. Now, I get a lot from this, too, and I hope that you do as well. But let me tell you my experience. We talked about the rebus thing. I started chairing meetings. And then, um, you know, eventually I got involved in leadership with a couple different groups. And then when you get involved in leadership, you get involved in, quote, the politics of AA. Because there are a lot of people that kind of hold positions really out of selfishness. That's just the reality of it. Just because somebody's clean and sober doesn't mean they don't have character defects. We all do. Again, I'm 30 years clean and sober, and there's still things that haunt me that I have to work through. There are some things that I continue to have to deal with and speak to a sponsor about, speak to my group about. There are things that I still battle with. You never get it whipped. You may get it on the run, but you never get it whipped because the wolf is always at the door. And I've always been a firm believer in karma. I I firmly believe that what comes around goes around. I mean, that's basically in every religious text that's ever been presented, right? Your karma, you reap what you sow. So if we go out there and we sow the seeds of self-righteousness and we sow the seeds of, you know, delusions of grandeur, I got it all. I'm Mr. AA. I'm Mrs. AA. I'm Mr. Recovery. I'm Mrs. Recovery. Well, you can expect the disease to hit you back. And some would say, well, Steve, it's not a disease. I, I don't really care to debate the topic with you. Because if you have it, you know it. And if you don't know it, you'll never understand it. There's no amount of words that I can come up with to make you get it. I've shared with some people before, it's kind of like, uh, in some respects, diabetes. You know, there are some people, their bodies just metabolize sugar differently than others. I mean, there are some people that can, you know, eat sugar like it's going out of style and never have any issues. And there's other people that uh, you have to take medication. They can't, they, can't, they can't even have sugar in moderation because their body metabolizes sugar differently. There are some people that smoke every day of their lives and live to be 100. Then there are others that, you know, smoke occasionally that live to be 50. 
And so everybody's a little different. Everybody's DNA is a little different. And so for us, you know, we don't have the ability on our own at times to process pain. Our body metabolizes alcohol differently. And that's not to let us off the hook by any stretch of the imagination. The bottom line is we have the issue, whether it is a genetic predisposition, whether it is a situation that is a learned behavior for us. The reality of it is we have it. Now, how do we deal with it? How do we fix it? How do we learn to live with it? Because that's really the, the, the crux of the matter, too, is learning to live with the affliction in a way that does not demonstrate consequences in your life. I've shared with you guys before, I didn't stop drinking and using because I didn't enjoy drinking and using. Make sense? You know, alcohol still got me drunk. And drugs still got me high, and all of it gave me a bit of a momentary vacation from whatever grief and strife and stress that I was dealing with. That still worked. But it's all the consequences that came with kind of living like a vampire that became too difficult to take. Now, those consequences are very real. We talk about the loss of relationships. We talk about the loss of self-esteem, the loss of self-image, the loss of reality. All of that is very real to us. And when we get on this side of step two, we get on the business side of step two, we get restored to sanity. We can look back in hindsight and say, you know what, this was a mess. And the decisions that I've made were completely insane. We have talked about that. Maybe you go back and look at our step study on step two. I talk about working step two and how important that is. Everybody says, you know, step one's the most important step. Guys, they all have the same value of importance. You can't just work step one and stay sober. You can't. You may can stay dry for a while, but you can't stay sober. In order to get to our root problem and get to the cause of our dysfunction, we have to work these steps. And I think step two is one of those that uh, kind of gets overshadowed in many respects. I think a lot of people look at it and say, well, you know, Steve, here's the deal. You know, I did step one. I did my fourth step, my fifth step. I'm good. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. That's not how it works. I don't, I don't care what your sponsor told you. And if your sponsor told you that, get another sponsor. Chances are your sponsor's going to get loaded too. If, I, if that's the, how they haphazardly work the steps, then you probably got the wrong sponsor. But there's not a sponsor worth their salt that's going to have you kind of you know, run through the steps without problem. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply properly working them that's the reality of that too and there are a lot of people too i'll be honest with you like we don't know how to pick a sponsor 
you know, we go to meet and it's like, hey, they said, they said some really cool things. So let me, let me pick them. You know, I'm a firm believer in, you know, you pick people that have what you want. And it takes some time to figure that out. You know, I, I'm, I'm a firm proponent of getting the temporary sponsor and let them know, hey, this is a temporary, I need a temporary sponsor until I can find the right person. Because sometimes you just need somebody to talk to until you find out who really qualifies to be your sponsor. I mean, it's basically a job interview in some respects, but you don't sit down and talk to them like that. You watch how they live. You watch how they work their program. You watch how they attend meetings. You watch how they speak. And say, you know what? This is a person that could probably sow some positive seeds in my life. Now, I would encourage you, too, don't get somebody that necessarily has the same, you know, behavior that you do. You're not looking for a best friend. And that's part of the problem with sponsorship. There are a lot of people out here, and and I I hate to be judgmental, but uh, I will be. There are a lot of people that, that are sponsors that have no business being sponsors. You know, the thing that I always tell people about the sponsor-sponsee relationship is it is a two-way street. I, I get a lot from it, too. I don't have time to do it as much as I used to. But I have served as a temporary sponsor for some people. And so I get a lot from it, too, because you guys are always a reminder to me that nothing has gotten better out there. Right? I mean, there are still consequences. I mean, people are showing up in our meetings and our treatment centers in droves. So it tells me it hadn't gotten any easier out there to live a life of chemical dependency. And so I get the reminder. So it's not a situation where your sponsor is your boss and your sponsor darn sure shouldn't be your friend because your friends won't tell you the truth, right? Your drinking buddies didn't either. Your using friends didn't either. They'll tell you what they, you need to hear to kind of validate your inclusion into their circle of influence. So I would suggest finding somebody that is going to hold you accountable. There are a lot of people out there that feel like, you know, it's their sponsor's responsibility to keep them clean and sober, and they're completely wrong. I used to tell my sponsees all the time, don't call me when you're drunk. I'm not going to talk to you when you're drunk. Call me before you get drunk. And then if you do get drunk, then call me after you sober up. I'm not coming to get you. I'm not going to bail you out. I'm not going to drive you home. I'm not going to do anything that hinders you from hitting your bottom. I'm not going to do it. But Steve, no, but you. This is a program of total abstinence. And while some people have tried to create a softer, gentler Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, uh, they're going to contribute to the overdose and DUI fatality rate. The reality of all this is this is a matter of life and death. It's not about being your friend. It's not about making you feel good. It's not about me sitting here telling you how great you are. Look how wonderful you look. You've lost some weight. You've gained some weight. You look great. Your makeup looks good. Your hair looks great. I'm so proud of you. That's not to say that at times you don't need some positive affirmation. You do. But you don't get it from your sponsor. That's what your family's for. They enabled you in the first place. Maybe perhaps they'll enable you in your recovery. It's not your sponsor's job to tell you how pretty you look. It's not your sponsor's job to tell you how good a job you're doing getting up and going to work every day. That's kind of a basic tenet of life. And so, again, there are a lot of people involved in all this stuff that um, 
I think sometimes you've missed the boat. You say, well, Steve, you're being awfully judgmental tonight. You're right. I am. I'm being honest. So you need to find a sponsor that will hold your tail accountable. That's as simple as I can make it. That's not going to be your friend. And if you're a sponsor out there befriending your sponsees, stop being their sponsor. Find somebody else for them. Because when they relapse, and inevitably I'm confident that they will, then you hold some responsibility in that too. Everybody has a personal choice to make true. But if you're not at least holding some sense of accountability in this deal and holding people's feet to the fire, then you're part of the problem. You know, one of the first things that I did when I got into AA is I found some friends who were similarly situated You know, people that would be a good support system for me. People that were dealing with the same things. I had about the same length of sobriety, around the same age as me, because I needed friends, because most of the friends that I had were people who were basically co-conspirators in my demise. Now, again, it's my responsibility to make the best decisions in my own life. That's the truth. But I needed a new set of friends. And so I found a new set of friends, and I didn't ask any of them to be my sponsor because none of them qualified to be my sponsor. They qualified to be my friends, but not my sponsor. And so I I say these things because I think there are are a few people out there that are willing to say it. And, And here's the reality of all of this. I want you to stay clean and sober. I do. I want that for you. I want that for your family. I want that for your friends, your coworkers. I want you to stay clean and sober. So I'm going to tell you the truth. If your sponsor is your friend, they're not your sponsor. They can't be both. And, and, I, and I hear some of the stories all the time. It's like, oh, my sponsor like understands me so well. Great, great. Keep them at arm's length in that respect. They don't need to be in your wedding. It's not a personal relationship in that respect. It's a part of the process. And you may disagree with me, and that's okay. I I mean, I've, I've learned to be okay with other people being wrong. There has to be a line of distinction that we draw between the sponsor sponsor relationship. And I'll be honest with you guys, too. You know, I look a little rough. Maybe you don't know this. I do. And uh, the reality of it is, is I don't really care. You know, I've reached a point in my life in sobriety that I don't live for the approval of other people. But I'll be honest with you, one of the things that I think hurts, hurts our community sometimes is, uh, you know, we put these people up, uh, up front. You know, we talk about anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. But we have these people, and everybody's so dolled up and so perfect, and uh, look, they stepped right out of a GQ catalog or off a country club or something like that. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Uh, the average addict, the average alcoholic doesn't identify with that. They don't. They don't aspire to be that. They're just trying to make it through the day. And there are a lot of times, I've had some you know, friends that I brought to meetings before, and they said, you know, it's nice to have you know, comfort in, in, uh, among strangers. You know, it's just nice to feel like people kind of understand what I'm dealing with. And I think sometimes as we, you know, we get 18 months under our belt, you know, and we feel like we're an old-timer, we forget what it's like to be that guy, that lady, with 24 hours. We do. And I know I'm ranting and raving a little bit tonight. And um, I just had some things I wanted to get off my chest. Because I think sometimes we do 
recovery and the recovery community a disservice by painting a picture that is unrealistic for most people. Do you think the meth addict that walks in with pick scabs all over their face, do you think that they you know, look at other people and say, you know, that they see these people that are all dolled up and everything else and everybody's got on their, you know, their Oxfords and you know, their pleated jeans and that stuff, do you think people look at that and say, you know what, hey, I fit in with these people. Let me, let me tell you, they don't. They don't feel that. And so one of the things that I love is that people you know, just kind of come as they are. You know, you be you. I'm going to be an advocate for the still-suffering addict. And I have so many people that walk in, you know, I go to meetings and everything, people say, man, I know you from somewhere. You know what, I don't know if you do or you don't. But I'd rather you know me from here. Wherever you know me from, I'd rather you know me from here. Because you are my people. No matter what I accomplish, no matter what I do, no matter what I aspire, no matter how much money I make, no matter how many cars I'm able to accumulate, you know, none of that matters. What matters is that I made a daily decision today to stay clean and sober. And that's something we can bond over. The rest of it doesn't really matter. The rest of it could be all gone tomorrow. It could all be gone tomorrow. That cute little picket fence, that whole life, that whole Instagram thing, a lot of that's fake anyway. There are a lot of people, even in long-term sobriety, they're dealing with very real-world personal problems. I can't promise you a rose garden. I can't. I can't promise you that you're going to be able to go do the things that I've done. I can't promise you that you're going to find the level of happiness that I have found. But I'm going to sit here and remind you guys of this. The most difficult things that ever happened in my life happened after I got clean and sober. They did. I just didn't go get loaded over it. Because thankfully to the people at AA, the people that really got it, you know, the people that weren't walking around telling me how cute I was and that sort of stuff, you know, the people were like, hey, you need to call your sponsor. Hey, I didn't see you at the meeting last night. Where you been? They'd call me and say, hey, man, what's going on with you? You went to the meeting tonight, and you left in a hurry. You didn't speak to anybody. What's going on with you? They held me accountable. And they wouldn't let me go off into the abyss. They made me feel like my presence mattered. You know, we can just go be cute and just you know, show up at meetings and say, hey, how are you? Good to see you. And then let the relationship in there. I would not have made it without real friends. I would not have made it without real drunks. I needed people that had lost more than me to remind me what's available for me if I continued on the path I was on. You know, I'd already been to rehab. I'd already been to jail. And you would think that'd be a big enough wake-up call, right? You'd think. You know, the day I got out of jail, I went over to Hattiesburg, and I was going to go to a meeting. I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to go, so I left early. And I went by one of the old bars I used to frequent. And it's daylight, right? It's July, you know, so this, you know, the sun was still up in the evening hours. It's daylight, and as I'm walking in, some guy's being thrown out of the bar, and he vomits right in front of me. And I thought to myself, if this is what it holds for me, I think I'm going to go to the meeting. And I went to the meeting, and all of a sudden, there's all these people who are like, Steve, you're home. Man, we're so glad. I've been so worried about you. Glad you're home. I was back with my family. I was back with people that understood what I was dealing with. Why would I forsake that assembly? Why would I do that? Why would I not want to be around people that are wired the same way I am? And so I think there's an important message that we send. 
you know, in the AA community, in the recovery community, the NA community, the CA community, the SAA community, whatever we're dealing with, is that you're not alone. And that's what this disease will do to us. It'll take us places we never wanted to go and make us stay longer than we ever wanted to stay. And while we're there, they make us feel totally alone. That we're going to be unlovable. Nobody's ever going to accept us. They'll never forgive us. And, you know, I shared this yesterday with a friend. And I actually had a chance to talk to my kids about some of this last night over dinner. You know, the hardest part about early sobriety for me is that all the people that love me, I felt like they kept me at arm's length. And you know what? They were right to. Because I still wasn't sure I wanted to stay clean and sober. But they kept me at arm's length. And there were some people that were still very bitter and very angry. And here's the deal. I earned every bit of that. But when you're young in recovery, and that's what you're dealing with, it's like the people that you expect to love you the most and understand you the most, when they're keeping you at arm's length and some people, maybe even some of your friends of friends and your acquaintances are rooting for you to fail, because that's one of the things in life that we do, is like if somebody fails, all of a sudden we feel like we're somehow elite, we're better than them, because look at what happened to him. You know what? I dealt with a lot of that. I still deal with a lot of that. Had some people just a week before my 30th anniversary bring up the fact, something that I did when I was 19 years old. Guys, I'm almost 50. You think I'm going to be shamed about something that I did 30 years ago? I'm not. But there are all these people out there with these constant reminders of our failures. You got to shut it out. It doesn't matter what they think. What they think only matters if you let it. But when you're 30 days, 60 days, 90, 120 days, a year sober, and you got people that you're depending on that are still kind of looking at you through the eyes of skepticism, it is difficult to deal with. It is incredibly difficult to deal with. And a lot of that may even be in our own minds. It may be imagined. You know, in my case, I had some people that just were basically done with me. They had washed their hands of me. You know, they had to be around me because they were related to me. They kind of had to deal with it. But you could tell they weren't ready to just bring me back in with open arms. That is difficult. It is extremely difficult. That's why you need the support of other addicts. That's why you need the support of a sponsor. And you need the community spirit of the recovery community. You need to be in meetings. You got to go in there and pay that insurance premium. Because all of a sudden when I went to meetings, all of a sudden that stuff got easier to deal with. Because I had some old timers that say, you know what, Steve, it gets better. It does. Give it time. It gets better. Just keep coming back. Don't drink. Don't use. All those relationships will be restored in time. And incredibly, they were. It's amazing what the old timers know, right? It's amazing. All of those relationships that truly matter will be restored in time. Now, there are some people to this day have never forgiven me. We're 30 years into this you know, bout of recovery, right? And they still haven't forgiven me. And you know what? That is a you problem. That is not a me problem. If you haven't forgiven me for something that I did when I was 19 years of age 30 years ago, then you're you're just wanting to hate me. And you know what? I'm okay with you hating me because I don't need you to love me. I've got enough people around me that love me. I got enough people around me that see value in me and the life that I'm leading that I don't need everybody to love me. I gave up on that long ago. And if you're one of those people that needs everybody like you, the chances of you staying sober are pretty slim. Because here's the deal, they don't. They won't tell you to your face, but they don't. 
And you know what? That's okay because I don't like everybody either. I don't have any beef with anybody. I'm at peace with everybody in the world as far as I'm concerned. If there is any grudge between me and anybody else, it is with them. Because life is too short to live with grudge and resentment. It just is. Life is too short and death is too certain to live with that. And so I have said many times, I have communicated it, I have made amends whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I've told people, hey, I'm sorry. And if you never forgive me, and if you don't want me back in your life, I completely understand. But I wanted to let you know that I own my responsibilities in the fracture of our relationship. I do. And I'm prepared to move on with my life with or without you. I'm going to stay sober with or without you. And I'm not going to go guilt somebody and say, well, if I'm going to make it, I'm going to need your support. No, no. That's an excuse. And that is basically laying the groundwork to relapse. Because all of a sudden, if this person that I put on this pedestal rejects me, it gives me an excuse. It gives me permission to go get drunk or high. And you don't have that permission. You don't. You don't have the permission to go get drunk or high. Once you have been on this side of it, once you have had a chance to taste sobriety and taste life, without chemicals, you don't have the right to go back. You have a choice to go back, but you don't have the right. Because there are a lot of people out there, thousands of people that are dying for the freedom that you have today, the freedom to choose a new way to live. And so if you go back, you're basically spitting in their face. You're basically saying, you know what, hey, I tried it, and you know what, it was better. It was better being estranged from my family and being chased by the police and having no self-esteem and losing my job and losing my kids, losing every relationship I ever had. That's better than this. And you know what, if that's what you choose, then I mean, go get your money's worth. But don't sit here and tell me that you've got permission to do that because you don't. And the truth of the matter is you're only kidding yourself. You're only talking yourself into that. But, you know, you can always go be in, you know, you can always go be in a commercial or something, and you can always, you know, get up there and, and, you know, lead the service or whatever. You can always go do that. But you and I both know in your heart you're not ready for that. And so I double back with that because I think it's important to understand. We kind of start with all this, like, you know, hey, let's get them in leadership. You know, how about we get them sober first? How about we do that? How about we teach them to walk before we push them out there to run because – you know, Joe was really kind of tired of chairing the Wednesday night meeting. You know, Nancy's kind of tired of having to always clean up the coffee pot after the meeting. You know, that's not to say those things aren't important, but let's not push people into leadership for our convenience. Let's do it when they're ready. Let's get them sober first. Let's get them clean first. Let's get them into the community first. When things aren't so overwhelming, let's get them comfortable first. Because, you know, if I, if I had been there six weeks and all of a sudden I said, like, hey, you've been here for a little while now. Yeah, great. Okay, listen, I need you to get a broom and, and sweep this up and hang after the meeting. Be here a little bit early tomorrow at 530 because you know, we're going to need you to do this. I'd have been like, you know what, guys, I didn't need a part-time job. So I'm going to split. But the reality of it is service work is an integral part of this. But as leadership, as people, and I, don't, I hate to be one of these get-off-my-lawn type people. But I think it's important for us to understand, too, that sometimes these people are not quite ready, are not quite ready to be pushed in leadership positions because it makes it a little easier for us to go to the meetings. Well, you know, I get tired of going all the time. I always end up having a chair. Is it really that big a deal? I mean, honestly, is it really that big a deal that you have to chair a meeting? I mean, does it take five, ten minutes to get the meeting started? And then you show up with your predetermined topic. It's like, hey, I got a topic. We give them two seconds. Okay, well, let's talk about gratitude. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. 
And so I've rambled on tonight, and uh, again, this is the first show in a few months, and I'm going to be back more regularly with you guys. Football season is winding down. I don't have any books on the horizon for a while, so I'm going to try to get back to a weekly show with you guys, and uh, we'll get back to our step study soon. Many of you have reached out, and you have missed the show, and I do apologize to you uh, for being absent for as long as I was. I'm still doing good. I didn't relapse. I'm still here, still living life and living life more abundantly. And I can assure you this, for the newcomer out there, for even people in, in quote, long-term sobriety, (laughs) there are a lot of promises left to come true in your life. A lot. You you go back and look at the promises of AA in the big book, and we still do that, you know. There are a lot of people that read, like, books about the big book and never read the big book. You know, we go out and we watch movies about recovery, and we don't ever really read the stuff. It's really about recovery. It's central, the basic tenets of recovery. It's like, oh, listen, this great song is about recovery. And then you find out the guy that wrote it, like, blew his brains out. You know, um, you know, stick with what works, right? But I can tell you this. There are promises in the big book that seem extravagant. And we even use that phrase. And do these seem to be extravagant promises? We think not. I can tell you I know not because I have lived to see all of them come true in my life. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. I think that's important to understand. I'm going to run through these real quick for you because I know many of you haven't read the big book. I know many of you are maybe new to the program. Maybe you're just kind of considering our way of life. These are laid out in chapter six of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if we work the 12 steps, we will see these promises come true. And and that's interesting too. I I read an interview one time with, uh, with Bill W. They asked him if there was anything he would change about the big book. And he said, yeah, he said, I would change the part that says, rarely have we seen a person fail to never. Have we seen a person fail? Now, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then, so there are some people, obviously, that have probably done it, and they were constitutionally capable of being honest with themselves. They didn't make it. But here are the promises, and I'm going to share these with you because I have, I have lived these, and I enjoy these today in my life. Promise one, we're going to know a new freedom, a new freedom and a new happiness. You're probably already experiencing that now, even early in your recovery. Promise two, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Promise three, we'll comprehend the word serenity. Promise four, we will know peace. Promise five, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Promise six, the feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Promise seven, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. And amen to that. Promise eight, self-seeking will slip away. Promise nine, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. And, and what a wonderful thing that is. Promise 10, fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. It's true. Promise 11, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. That is one of the most amazing and miraculous promises of the program. And it is absolutely true. And promise 12, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's incredible, man. Think about that. All of that can come true for you at no cost. You don't have to go buy a prescription. You don't have to sign up for some service. You don't have to use your health insurance. You get a sponsor, you work steps, you go to meetings, and those 12 incredible things will happen in your life. It's free. But you know what? You're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to work for it like nothing you've ever worked for in your life. Because you're worth it. That's going to do it for today. I'll be back next week.
And you remember, every time that you feel alone, you're not, because I'm right there with you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 